Jack O'Brien sat down with moderator John Rando for a one-on-one interview in December of 2001. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theater Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. I, 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 I think my, I have a very secure ego, and I don't feel competitive. I'm as happy for your success as anything that has happened in my life, and you know that. Um, and I don't feel, I want you to be more successful. I want you to do not only better work, I want you to do it with me and at my theater and with me looking on and applauding. Um, I, I don't think it has to be all me, ever. But I do get off on watching people uh, succeed. And I think um, sometimes, if you're properly helped, it's not that difficult. It may be difficult to ring the bell, but not to, I don't know, leave the moment better than you found it. Um, and what about designers? What about working with them in club? I mean, you work with some people over and over again yeah. for many, many years. Yeah. You nurture these relationships over, over your life. Yeah. And then, how come? Why do you well, it's like, it's like, is it any different from a social life? Is it any different than dinner party or... I mean, I, I see no, you know, I got to tell you, there, I, I don't think there's a different set of rules. I think that the way you treat your children, your lover, your family, your company, your, the people, it's all the same. Or if it isn't, it should be. And, and, and I think it has to do with mutual respect. I think you hang out with the people you like because they amuse you and you, they bring something fresh to it. I think that's true of actors that I love and it's true of designers. I never know what the hell they're going to come up with. I love to play what if. I love what if. I love it in the rehearsal pro- process. I love it in the design process. What if we did this? What if, what if? I love all that. Because, you know, you just shake that box up and something else shakes loose. And one of those things is the right thing. And, you know, I, this is something I meant to tell you a few minutes ago. Uh, um, it's a confession. Uh, I, I really cannot go to scary movies. And I can't look at them on television if I'm home alone. Because I believe them. And, and don't do that crap with me saying, oh, it's just a movie. Well, maybe it's just a movie, but it's got me working. <laughs> and I get frightened. I was frightened coming out of the basement when I was a kid, when the light went out. I, I get frightened easy. And now I take care of it. Because I decided it's because I believe what I see. And that's my job. If I don't believe what I see, then I have a covenant with you to tell you as kindly as possible. I didn't believe it. And we have to do it until we do. But in the belief column, being frightened to death is not one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> so I stay away from it. You know, here's a good question. Here's something about, because I want to switch over to Full Monty. 
I, we, we had a phone conversation maybe a year or so ago in which I sent you a, a script. It was a, it was a Gershwin remake, sort of a revival. And you said something really fascinating because you have had such joy and, <coughs> and great times in doing musical revival. But at that point, you said, John, who cares about musical revival? The new work is where it's at. Yeah. At that point, you were really knee-deep in, in mighty success with Full Monty. Right. And um, so... So talk to me about the genesis of Full Monty, how that even came about, yeah. and what is, it impo- what is it now that's driving you with the idea of doing new work? And, and, you know, okay, I'll do that one first, okay, because good. That's, the other one's a little cancel. Yeah. Um, um, the whole idea about the new work, and I think this has to do with time yeah. and where you are in your life. Uh, I've given 20 years of my life to the Globe Plus, to the Globe Theater, in which uh, one of the things we do is revive, we revive a lot of material albeit some of it is, not much of it is classical, at least two a year is. I don't do them all. But, but uh, I've done George Kelly and I've done, you know, I've done, I've sifted through the past a lot and, and enjoyed that enormously. Arthur Miller, all sorts of things that I really, really care about. And I'm very proud of them and I care about them. But you see, I think what really makes the difference is, is you coming together with new people and, and discovering something new. Um, you know, we look with such affection at Kazan and Williams and Miller and Inge and that whole slice, uh, and and we're right to do so. That is, some of the, the great glory of American theater was conceived at that time. But they were all new to each other, and they were all banging those things out by themselves. Uh, I I don't want to be negative in the wrong way here, and I don't want to say something. Uh, that I might be judged incorrectly. But I will tell you that last year I went to two musical evenings with two simply glorious women up there performing in somebody else's work. By that I mean shows that were conceived for two other actresses generations ago. And as wonderful as they were, I came away angry that we're not creating works for these people who are walking around among us. Not that we shouldn't look backwards and honor the past and do that, but those, when it is given to you, when the moment is given to you to sort of sing out Louise, it would be nice if you added something to the store of what we have coming to us. And then if you take the relationships, which is what I'm trying to do now, the relationships that I've loved and engendered over the years, and see what is in there that we could point with pride in 20 or 30 years and say, well, wow, she never did that until she did it in your show. Uh, that's, that's sort of ennobling. And, and, and I think maybe it is. I mean, this is not inconsequential, but my partner died a year ago. And time is very important to me now. It was a shock. It was an accident. And I thought I had all this time ahead of me. And I don't have it. It's gone. And so I weigh all of this very carefully. I promise you, you cannot, 9-11 taught us, you cannot know what's coming down the pike. It's now, it's this moment that we are responsible for. And if that's a rehearsal or a meeting with us or a telephone conversation with a friend of yours, you have to give it your best shot. That's, That's what they mean by being in the moment, and it's exhilarating. It's pretty good. 
So I, that's what I, where I am right now. It's really important to me that I that I use this time um, with great responsibility and integrity and honor um, because I'm a very lucky man and I'm blessed in friendship and I've had a wonderful time in my career. If this building were to fall out at night, not a tear will be shed for me because I've been out there wailing and having a great time all by myself sometimes. And, uh, and I'm very happy about that. Full Monty, perfect example. Um, friends. This is all about friends. Uh, Lindsay Law, who uh, I've known since he produced my first television thing, which was the acting company's The Time of Your Life in 1975, with, yes, Patty LuPone and Kevin Klein, nanner, nanner, nanner. <laughs> um, we did this. We did this for uh, American play. Or no, no, great performances in 1975. And Lindsay was like so smart, so clever, so interesting, so insightful, so healthy. And we became really good friends. And we've been friends since then. Then he moved to American Playhouse, and he was singularly responsible for my little television career, where I did all of these American Playhouses, uh, starting with. Uh, that one, and then The Good Doctor, and then um, I Never Sang for My Father, and, and uh, All My Sons, and um, uh, Enemy of the People, and um, Tina's Play, uh, Penny, Churches. Penny Churches. You know, I did a bunch of them. And Lindsay guided me through that, said, you don't need anybody helping you. You've got to learn how to do this yourself. You've got to snap those fingers and move those cameras around. And it was great. Oh, boy, guys, if you've never done that, piece of cake. It's wonderful. You just put the camera where you want it. <laughs> well, you know, when you're directing on the stage, you have to compose the stage in a way that makes the audience look where you want them to look. That has to do with a lot of very subtle, complicated things. And when you're doing a play like, let's say, uh, The Time of Your Life, there's 70 people on stage all the time. <laughs> so they just can't go waltzing around by themselves. You've got to have to figure that out. With a television camera, just put the camera there. Put the camera there. Put the camera there. It's great. Anyway, um, so Lindsay and I, we had this, we've had this great friendship, and he went from, with great success, from American Playhouse to Fox Searchlight Films, where amongst the panoply of sensational shows that he chose and guided into fruition was this little movie called The Full Monty, which was a huge, huge success. And, and, and Phyllis will like this too. I never, in all the years that Lindsay was at Fox Searchlight, I never called him and said, so when am I going to get a, a movie? I'm one of your best friends, and we've done all the successful work. Why don't I have Phyllis used to say <laughs> And of course, in all, in all honesty, if you run a regional theater, you cannot spend 22 weeks, 26 weeks, 35 weeks in post-pro. You can't. You just can't do it. You have to be working on your the, in your theater and raising money mostly and all those things. So I knew why. But anyway, we, it was never spoken. We were pretty classy about this, right? Because some other really irritating people did get movies. <laughs> <laughs> Who will be nameless, but they can be bought for a small fee at the end of this session. <laughs> so Lindsay picks up the phone a couple years ago and calls up and says, what would you say? I knew, I knew. I knew what Near the end of the sentence. What would you say to the idea of the full Monty as a, a, a musical? And I knew. And I said, it's a great idea. We'll do it here, the Globe. He said, fine. 
Um, everyone is calling me for the rights, and I figure, why shouldn't I do it? And I said, you're absolutely right. So we called Terrence McNally immediately. That seemed self-evident. Um, I wanted Jerry right away. That seemed felt self-evident. He takes people's clothes off on stage better than anyone I've ever known. Um, and has other amazing gifts as well. Maybe the most profound is his extraordinary gift for collaboration. Um, and then we went about the search to find the great David Yazbek, who had never done, it, never done a show in his life. It was done with friends, talking to each other like friends, about a project that we knew that we knew that we just couldn't screw up. We couldn't afford to. We had to take proper care of it, and I think sort of we did. Um, I want to open it up for questions, but just um, uh, I wanted one, one last question about the, the next project, which is Hairspray. Yeah. And, how, this is and there's a, one after that. Yes, there is. There, the process of doing these musicals, like with Full Monte, you did, you did a couple of workshops, you did, yeah. you, then you brought it out to your... Talk to us a little bit about Hairspray and its sort of journey now. Well, Hairspray... Now, Hairspray is a very different animal from what... I mean, this is really new for me because my dear, dear friend Robbie Marshall was doing Hairspray and had started the workshop process and had cast it and was ready to go. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, we did Damn Yankees together. We're really, really dear, very close collaborative friends. I love him. And we talk frequently. And his partner, John DeLuca, did the choreography for How the Grinch Stole Christmas at the Globe. So I'm, we're very, we're, we're thick. And um, Robbie had done all this work. And then he got Chicago. And he hoped that they would wait a, a year for him. But he sensed that they might not because they were so anxious to go. Uh, and so Jerry and I got into this mix. And we said, see, here's the thing about workshops. I really don't believe in them. I believe in readings. I think what you need to do is hear the project. Get in the room with good actors and the musicians and the writers and voice it. Then, after you've worked on it for a little bit, get a few friends to come and listen to it and hear where the laughs are or aren't. And uh, you get about six really smart friends who will tell you, this is really good, as you did, right? Um, and then you go to work. But this idea of getting up and moving around and spending a lot of money, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. We either know what we're doing or we don't. Don't hire me. If you don't, you know, if you think I have to get up and audition for you, I can, I can block this room right now. <laughs> and if you don't think I can, don't hire me. You know, I, I'm not into that. I'm into using the time for us. And that is for the writers. The writers need to hear it and hear it and hear it. Hear it good, hear it bad. Hear it pop peppy, hear it flat. Hear it with a good audience. You know, that's, what you, that's when you learn how to do it. You tune it like that. So we just thought, well, let's see what you got. Um, instead of throwing everybody out and starting over, I love Rob, I love his taste, you know, let's just see what you got. And so they brought all these people in, and we loved them. Now, I was working on the book. I'd worked on the book with the, with the writers maybe about two or three months now. Um, because I... Um, no, I... I, um, the, the, I never listened to a score until I read the book. That's another nugget from my little quotations. If, if they want you to hear the score, say, could I see the book first? And then read the book. And if the book is good, then you listen to the music. Why? Because music is so seductive. 
And those of you who have any aptitude toward music, then you think to yourself, oh, that's such a good number. I can't wait to get my hands on that number. And you're screwed. <laughs> because you didn't address the problems of the book when it's bald, when it is not, there's no flesh on it, when it's just the story. And, and I no longer do it. I, I, will, I refuse to. I mean, they send you the CDs and stuff. I just put them away and read the book, and if the book is good, then I go ahead and start exploring it. But if it isn't, I'm not going to do it. So let's see if there are any questions. Right here. Uh, what do you do when you have a situation where the writer that's a that's a very that is that hmm. I can't even answer that question in a straight way you know why because that has to do with working with adversity um, will will a writer cut something or the number or will they rewrite it it is our job to communicate the necessity to do that if we believe it. And I think it's incumbent upon me to do that in such a way that the situation becomes hopefully self-evident as opposed to, I think you did. One of the things I've tried to do consciously in my own work is to back off the abyss and, and not really see adversarial signs. I try to get everybody going down the same way at the same time. And then if I also, if you, if, you, if you dig yourself into a hole, then you have that awful thing of having to support it. Because sometimes I'm wrong too. Um, I try to get it up in the air. Is this a problem? Does anybody else but me feel that that ending is extended? Uh, maybe it's just me. Just put it up there. Like a little weird feather. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, somebody else will say, well, you know, I've always thought that thing is too much. <laughs> and, and th- but that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So in an odd way, I cannot remember. I, you know, somebody, another question I get asked is, is do you ever have, uh, uh, do you ever have an argument with, with, with uh, an actor? Do you ever go head to head and in the last I have to be very careful I say this <laughs> in the last maybe 10 years I've only had one and it's always insecurity that does it it's always somebody who is not able to show their vulnerability who can't come that extra way with you and I just the older I get the simply the more patient I get because I, honey I can wear them down <laughs> I can I understand what you're saying, and I feel the same. I feel very connected, and I always try to work with people who are equally collaborative and healthy. It's the individual who's not. You know, you get fooled by them. You think that that's somebody who's willing to collaborate, and you get into rehearsal and you find they like every eye they do, every tree that's been cut. I have had, I have had a, a, a rather famous uh, writer uh, who, who is is in in sort of mortal fear of being cut. And I, it's almost like dealing with someone who's ha- who is a victim of abuse. I mean, they are, this person has been so badly treated in another time in their life, they, they cannot hear you. And so, uh, and, and uh, nevertheless, I got 20 minutes out of that play. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so is it just by just constantly 
Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, a great thing to say is, oh, look, and I, this is what I did with Mr. Abbott. Um, and and I, I don't have any problem saying this. I said to him, because we had a huge, huge disagreement about the role of women in his piece, which were, I just couldn't go there. And how he, how he made fun of women and how he saw marriages and, and relationships in a very George Abbott 50s way. And I don't blame him for that, but I had to try to say to him, Mr. Abbott, I don't think that we can sell this any longer because women buy tickets. And I think we've got to, and he did not get it. He really didn't get it. And I, I don't have the time or the inclination to repeat some of it, but it was really tough. And I finally said to him, look, we know your version works. It's worked for 34, 40 years. Let's try this. If it doesn't work, we'll put it all back. Well, you know, there's no answer to that. <laughs> Let's try it, is all you can say. I feel very strongly about this. Would you mind if we just took the speech out tonight and it, or in the rehearsal today, and if it doesn't work, if, you, if, it, if it's clear that it doesn't work, it goes back in. And, you know, sometimes you lose the round. Sometimes they say, oh, I can't stand it. And then you think, well, okay. If it means that much to you, it's, we won't close on Thursday because of that. We'll, we'll work something else out. But uh, you just have to try to get it so that it's the problem of us, not the problem between us. I think that's probably the question. Along this line of making changes, um, you're dealing with a script, a revival, and the script is old. It's still under copyright. The contract you sign says, don't change a word. I just did Sunrise at Campobello written in 56, Dory Shari's long gone, right. set in 1921. I played fast and loose. I rewrote this. I changed that. My job was to make it as clear as possible, I felt, and I just did whatever I had to to make it understandable for the audience. I broke my contract. Yeah, you did. I mean, the thing is, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how to answer that because um, we also have a trust. And my, my instinct is, I probably wouldn't have done it unless there's no alternative. Uh, I, I did it, I'll tell you what I did. I, and I say this because I, I know what you're talking about. I cut the daylights out of the third act of the George Bears because it was so cruel. It was so, it was such a funny play. The first act was hilarious. The second act was really funny. The second act is maybe the greatest act of comedy ever written in America. And I did exactly the George Bears, George Kelly. I did exactly what Mr. Kelly did. I took the Samuel French acting edition and put it on because I knew he was right. The third act was twice as long and so cruel. And I thought, after I've given the audience the second act, I can't do this. I cut, I cut it down to 22 minutes and sort of played against it. And, and, uh, and I'm glad I did it. Now look, that wasn't going anywhere. I did it at the Globe. It didn't have legs. It wasn't coming into New York. So, so you learn something about it, uh, 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 you know. And sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes we're wrong. I mean, sometimes what you have to do is put yourself back into that situation and see if you can make it. But our audiences are far less tolerant than they used to be. I mean, I had, uh, I, I gave myself a present several years ago of doing the Way of the World because uh, it, it, curiously enough, it's only like 11 actors. And so rather than do a Shakespeare of 40, 
I did this, and I, and it was, it's one of the great plays in, in, in the Western civilization. But, guys, it didn't kick in until the third act. <laughs> doesn't get funny until the third act. And you've got a long way to go there with Fainall and Mrs. Fainall and all these people. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk going on there before the laughs start to happen, because that's the way they did them. And they had all kinds of time. They weren't going, you know, when Neil Simon started to write funny in the first five seconds, the whole climate of drama in America changed. And now everybody wants their candy up front. And sometimes you can't get it in a, in a, in a piece like that. So it's, a, it's you're, you're, you're between a rock and a hard place. I'm getting there. I'm of the generation where we always did our own homework, and so you know, you were expected to do all that. There wasn't a dramaturg when you know until 50. I mean, you know, look, there weren't directors until. Sax Manigan, you know, so let's, let's not get too smart about that. Uh, Mrs. Minnie Mattern Fisk told you where to stand. Okay. Turn up stage and wait for me until I'm done. <laughs> that was how direction started in this, in this last century. So, uh, but but uh, that's, a whole, that's a whole thing that, that's come along that I think is thrilling and wonderful. And I think that, that working in collaboration with the dramaturg and, and them bringing ideas and resources to you. It's just great. It's just that I always grew up doing all my own, my own work because John wouldn't do it. <laughs> uh, I also have a question about property rights. At what point, really both of you, at what point did you start to copyright your direction? Do you copyright your direction? I don't. You don't? So well, doesn't the union does it for us now? I mean, in other words, you, you know, SSDC, you ca they cannot, I mean, this is, this is, we've had several instances of this, where if, if they take my production, they, they have to either pay for me to come and do it, or they pay me off or something. There are, this is all contractually worked out. But it isn't a matter of, of copywriting your own work, I don't think, although I think this is fairly new, am I right, Phyllis? And Jerry Gutierrez, too. Yeah. Right. Oh, I just trust Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. O'Brien, my name's Eugene I think Porgy. Uh, Porgy and Bess, I have to say, you know, there are, there are things that happen. I was the lucky one. Uh, in 1976, that piece had not seen anybody but Ella Gerber for 20 years. And, and the black singers had not been invited to be part of it or to contribute to it. And it was really um, complicated. And it was the year of the bicentennial. And I was the last person hired. And the whitest person 
ever seen and um, it was a it was a turning point in my life uh, both as a director as a man as a, in, in a spiritual sense um, it was one of the great experiences of a lifetime and um, I've had a wonderful time and I, and I think I've done some really good work but nothing that that moved me or that that I felt I I like woke up and and everybody they, the children were so ready for it because no one had spoken to them ever about their feelings or, or what these traditions were and we, we uncovered a whole new thing and uh, you know uh, it, it's uh, I'm very grateful for that experience um, I think that would be it yes Bill um, where is the Well, I'm the last person who asked that, but I do think that um, there is nothing like it. And it's unfortunate, but if that's where you get the bang for your buck. See, the problem with us is unlike films or television, we don't go off with regularity. It either happens or it doesn't. And, and the experience when it happens uh, is, is, I think, soul-changing. Um, uh, I, I love movies desperately. I love to forget. I love television. I love staring at television. But but if you ask me the great moments of my life, they would be confrontations with living artists, whether it's on the opera stage or the concert stage, or the or the stage itself. And um, that those are very high stakes. Um, but because nothing rivals that. Nothing possibly can emulate that you being there the night that so called well goes off. I mean, boy, I saw a master class when she took on Los Angeles. And you want to see chops? I mean, the entire film and, and movie industry was there in the in the Mark Taper theater to watch So Called Well do her thing and baby she did it. <laughs> she was cauterizing. I have, I have never seen anything like it in my life. And and you knew that you were looking at an Olympic athlete giving an Olympic performance for people who had never seen one. <laughs> that will never go out of fashion. That impact of the of the the noble profession of the performer self-immolating in front of a live audience is what it's all about. And I am here to say, with the last breath in my body, that's all I want to do. That's it. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. 
Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.